Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we are thinking, talking about Japan. And Japan is a really uh, interesting case because it has consistently done well in the Nation Brands Index. I think it's currently number four. And yet maybe in some other indicators, things are not as they should be. But let's, Simon, why don't we start by talking about the long-term image of Japan? What are the sources of Japanese strength? Well, let's never forget that uh, Japan, in, in terms of its of its image, its international standing, is one of the two greatest miracles of the of the last century or so. Along with Germany, and for somewhat similar reasons, Japan has gone from being a pariah to being almost universally admired. The fact that uh, it's invariably in the top four or five in the Nation Brands Index, sample representing more than 70% of the world's population, the admiration for Japan, Japan is completely extraordinary. And as is the case with Germany, if you just think back 70 years or so, it's a country which wouldn't even have made it into number 50 mm-hmm. if we'd been running the survey then. How has it done that? Again, the story of Japan and the story of Germany are, are, are linkable and linked in some ways. Nothing to do with what they said about themselves and everything to do with how they reformed, mm-hmm. they reformed their economies, the retreat from nationalism mm-hmm. and militarism, um, the participation somewhat forced in both cases into the international systems which were emerging in the post-Second World War uh, period, and an absolute dependency on international trade, ensuring that both countries reached out the warm grip of commerce mm-hmm. consumers around the world. I, I've always said that the miracle of Japan's uh, regaining of uh, international respect was very much a miracle of export. Um, mm-hmm. It was those products that did it. And in a period in the, in, in the, the, the mid to late 1940s, when Japan couldn't have engaged with international opinion in any way at all. Japanese people were given the cold shoulder, whatever they did and wherever they went. Nobody would have dreamt of going on Japan, going to Japan on holiday or wanting to live or work or study there. The only, and, and Japanese culture was Mosonono, but the only thing that people were prepared to do was to buy Japanese products because they were very cheap and they worked pretty well. And by that means, Japan gradually over the decades worked itself back into people's favours. And I think the way the story goes is, after all the people who make these great products and the good service and the high quality and the great design and the sensible pricing behind them, they can't be so bad. And there's something about that very intimate relationship between the consumer of a product and the product itself, which makes it very hard for you to hate the country that makes it or the country that it comes from. You know, as you're, you, you can... You can hate what the Nazis did during the Second World War, but as you drag that brown razor over your face every morning, that's a very close, very intimate relationship. And over time, uh, trust begins to accrete around that consumer experience. And I, I think there, w- there was also an underpinning interest in Japanese aesthetic and sort of a fascination with things Japanese. Maybe some of the Japanese design fitted with modernism so... Japanese style was sought after in the 60s and that, that you know that must have 
help too. But if we go over to the good country index and look at the indicators of what they're doing in proportion to GDP, you know, Japan looks nowhere near as good. You have it at number 26 in good country and an area where I've always thought of Japan as as being strong uh, technology. It's way down. It was something like 59th or 49th in culture, which suggests that it's not doing a good job of getting these things out to the common good that the distinctive culture is staying home. But that just seemed actually, you know, that the number on culture seems very anomalous. And could you talk us through how you got to 49th for culture? Yes, sure. Well, we've, we've spoken about the way that culture works in the, in the Good Country Index before, and it is one of the indicators where we have to use a lot of tokens, really, to, to measure the way that a, a country exports and shares its culture overseas. Because as I said last time we spoke about this, the stuff you'd really want to measure and really want to put in there uh, just isn't measured, isn't measured and to some degree isn't measurable. So, you know, I'd love to know how many Japanese bands play gigs in countries outside Japan, how many countries the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra visits in a year, and so on and so forth. These very obvious and direct measurements of how a country shares its cultural output around the world. But we don't have those measurements, and uh, certainly I don't have the resources to, to do the primary research, although I'd love to do it one day. So what we use is we use the available tokens, and those are primarily connected with trade, which really ought to benefit Japan, because, as I was going to say a moment ago, um, the story of Japan and globalization is very much a commercial story. Japan has contributed to and benefited from the globalization of commerce to a very significant extent, more than many other countries. But when it comes to the other aspects of globalization, the globalization of culture and society and people and so on and so forth, Japan tends to take a bit of a backseat. Going to the Good Country Index, what are we measuring? We're measuring freedom of movement, which is connected with visa restrictions. We're measuring whether countries pay their uh, their dues to UNESCO on time. So do you support the international cultural system? We are talking about the exports of creative goods and creative services. So how much cultural product do you actually share with the with the rest of the world? As I say, those are trade numbers, and they and they ought to speak well for Japan. But in that limited sampling of Japan's cultural engagement with the rest of the world, it's not doing as much as you would expect it to do. Well, I, I think you've, you're I think you're onto something, and maybe I'll come back to that in a minute. But I'm I'm sure I'm certain that Japan is worried about its international image. And this is, you know, underpinning the decision to host the Tokyo Olympics. There's a narrative in Japan of of coming back from the big earthquake a few years ago. And immediately after bidding for the Olympics, they then put in a bid for an expo. So Expo 2025 is going to be in Osaka. And that kind of mega event strategy suggests a country that that is really looking to, I guess, in Japan's case, maintain a, a presence, maintain admiration and engagement with the world. And yet, if you look at, for example, the number of Japanese people who speak a foreign language, they are... Uh, in the uh, around uh, hundredth or lower in international league tables, both in general foreign languages and in uh, speaking uh, English 
And that can't be good for a country that depends on global engagement. And I think that whilst we do find some of the great UNESCO initiatives have come out of Japan and leadership in UNESCO has come from Japan and the UNESCO University located there and so forth. But the UN University, yeah. That's right. But you've also got these other indicators of people not being interested, uh, seeing all the answers at home. But going going beyond this, my, my suspicion is that Japan is still conceptually basing its identity on a 19th century idea that what a country is, is a fusion of geography and ethnicity and that the best thing you can do to promote your country is to emphasize your distinctiveness and the way in which you're not like any other place and that an inwards looking idea of national identity rather than looking outwards. And if we're moving to a sense of nation, of national purpose in the world, or if we're evaluating countries based on how well they resolve common problems, Japan is going to be conceptually out of step. Yes. Well, very very much what, what I was about to say, Japan has for centuries had um, a, a torn, indeed tortured relationship with this burgeoning idea of the international community, which is now essential, fundamental for our survival. It's, not, it's no longer a choice. As on the one hand, Japan wants to play internationally, particularly for trade purposes. It, it craves the the respect and the admiration of the world and has done for a very, very long time. And yet, at the other hand, it, on the other hand, it is still peddling this idea, which is partly mythological, of Japanese culture being somehow uniquely hermetic. That it's the one, it's the, it's the country with more culture than any other country on earth. That you can't even have a business meeting in Japan without reading four or five books about it. And this idea that you're surrounded by these appallingly complex cultural traps. And in some ways, one can understand that approach. It's a way for a small country to defend itself against uh, against more powerful countries and cultures in the neighborhood. It's a way of keeping itself strong and united. But it's also a way of not engaging. It hasn't, this, uh, this uniqueness idea hasn't played badly for Japan in history. Because people do understand and do appreciate that Japan has an extraordinarily rich culture, cultural heritage, which in many ways persists even today, and it's and it's remarkable and it's suitably admired. But unless Japan Japan can somehow figure out a way of sharing that more willingly, more openly, more warmly, more mutually than it has done in the past, welcoming people in rather than terrifying them with its with its difference and its distance. And it's not going to do well in the coming years, and it's not going to help the international community in the coming years. One of the signs that Japan wants to reach out to the international community is um, you're right when you say that they're keen to engage and that they're worried about their image. I've seen I've seen a few messages coming from the Japanese government recently. I can't remember whether they were advertisements or PR campaigns or what have you, but actually doing something of a good country um, mm-hmm in the sense that instead of bragging about their assets and achievements, they were bragging about how helpful they are, um, and what a lot of good they do when there's a natural disaster in another country, and how much aid they send, and how many experts they send when there's an earthquake in Haiti, and so on and so forth. This is, if it is uh, anything to do with the good country, it's a terrible misunderstanding of the good country, because the good country says, don't brag about your assets and achievements, 
do things to make yourself helpful and then people will feel glad that you exist. Bragging about how helpful you are is likely to be counterproductive. Nonetheless, it's an indication that something is going on there, a desire to be acknowledged, a desire to be recognized and a desire to be helpful. Japan is helpful. A lot of people do feel very glad that Japan exists, but uh, it isn't playing the game very fully just yet. Well, one thing that I was impressed by was that they did a campaign around saying thank you and acknowledging the support from outside during the earthquake. And so I, I was impressed by that. I also, talking to people in China, were impressed by Japanese help during the early stages of COVID. And the Japanese didn't just supply material to China. They also did it with these little cultural extras. So they were including poems. They were putting in little acknowledgments of cultural kinship that were noticed and really, really appreciated. And the third thing that I, I was impressed by was when, the, do you remember the fans cleaning up the stadium after a football match? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't that great? Indeed it was. Things I can't imagine British fans doing. Uh, number one would be cleaning up. The... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, for, for, for listeners who are not familiar with it, this was something that popped up in the, the Rio uh, Olympics and the, um, and, and the football as well. That the Japanese fans, when they lost a game, would voluntarily uh, clean up the, the, the rubbish in the stadium afterwards. They all appeared with black plastic bags and started collecting the garbage from under the seats as a voluntary action. And and everybody talked about it, of course, because nobody had ever seen anything of that sort before. So it, it kind of promoted itself as a as a as an action, as a symbolic action. But it just reminds us that the Japanese culture is very rich with these delightful gestures towards society, towards community. Yes, as with most countries in the past, that's necessarily meant your own society, your own community, your own nation. There is a clear example of how one can take these traditions and these customs and update them, repurpose them for the modern international world. And this is a clear indication of what Japan should be doing on every level, not just on this slightly homespun level or when there's a disaster. That's the key. It's not about pretending to be Western. It's about grading and interpreting your own cultural trends and tendencies and habits and beliefs and values to the level of the international community. And Japan is in such a good place to do that. It's frustrating that it, it, it hasn't fully latched on to this yet. But by the way, the, the, the little poems and the messages um, to the Chinese, uh, more of that is badly needed. If you look at the, uh, the, the data in the Nation Brands Index, specifically looking at how the Japanese rank China and how the Chinese rank Japan, there are, I think, probably no two countries that detest each other more strongly anywhere in the index. So it's worse than India-Pakistan? That I don't know because Pakistan's not included. Not in the index, right. But then the family ties between India and Pakistan, one would expect would tone that down, at least at the margins. Japan and China is in many ways, uh, well, it's a a problem of older date uh, for a start. It's having time to become... uh, to become deeply rooted. But it would be an interesting comparison to make. At some point, I'd love to include Pakistan in the Nation Brands Index. We're always short of space. That's the problem, because otherwise we're asking respondents to spend an hour answering questions and the quality of the answers is just not good at that. But um, certainly very, very low levels of mutual self-esteem between those two countries. Well, I I think whenever I've been channel surfing in China, at 
any point there's been an anti-Japanese movie on mm. uh, somewhere uh, yep. on, on on Chinese TV. It's been the socially ex- or it's been the politically acceptable prejudice to have to remember the war to vilify Japanese behavior, mm. and quite understandable that they would feel that. But expressing anger with remembering resistance to the Japanese. That's been that's been okay. It's been almost like a propaganda safety valve over the last twenty years to to focus on um, memory of the war and anger, anger with Japan. But it, it also gives this kind of a community of people who are fed up with Japanese behavior. Yeah. And so you know, I've seen South Korea reaching out to other countries around the comfort comfort women issue. Yeah, and. Yeah kind of building a, a, a community of people who have been wronged by the Japanese military, Japanese government at that particular, in, you know, during World War Two. Yeah, stop press. I was just looking at the, the latest data from the Nation Brands Index of 2020, and I have to correct myself, this is not mutual at all. The, in the overall Nation Brands Index, that's the composite average score of every single question. The Japanese respondents rank China 50th out of 50 countries overall, so the worst country on earth. Chinese respondents, on the other hand, rank Japan second in the world. Oh, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, second after the UK. So the Chinese view of the world is UK first, Germany and Japan second equal. So this is a very, very this is very much a story of unrequited affection. But that then suggests that the Chinese are the people are resisting government attempts to channel uh, indignation at, at at Japan because the movies are still there. Looks like, yeah. But which which makes it even more uh, even more interesting. Whatever they're trying, it's not working. And did you see what where, where does Korea stand in this for Chinese audiences? So the South Korean panel ranks China twenty first overall, mm-hmm. um, which is and vice versa. Close to the average, South Korea ranks 23rd on average overall globally. They see South Korea pretty much in the same way that everybody else does. That's interesting because, you know, South Korea has worked very hard to communicate its culture across that whole region. Yes. That's very, very, very interesting. The South Korean panel ranks Japan very low at 38th. The South Korean panel ranks China 50th bottom of the list, as do the Japanese. So both the Japanese and the South Korean respondents put China bottom. And China doesn't doesn't, uh, in any sense uh, respond in the same way. But, but, you know, some of this is going to be COVID-related, isn't it? Yes, very likely. And bearing in mind what we said a couple of episodes ago about how uh, China's image uh, plummeted as a result of COVID. So that may well be a factor. It would probably be worthwhile at some other stage not while we're actually online, looking back and seeing uh, how those numbers compare with last year. And if Japan was was designing a strategy uh, to avoid a, a collapse in its image, because right now, based on the data we've been uh, sifting through today, people are still reacting to to how Japan was twenty years ago, which is not not surprising. That's that's usual. If they want to try and keep that positive. What should they be doing? What should they be looking to? Where do you think they, that, that their um, emphasis should be? 
because you know I, I assume you think the the Olympics and the Expo are are a waste of, are, are a waste of their time based no. based on previous discussions. They're, they're Where not, should they be putting their energy and effort? I think I think the 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 Olympics well the Expo let's not go there but but the Olympics it, it can mean something if it's part of a bigger plan. And it's a it's a platform. It's a moment when a country is unavoidably in the global spotlight. And if you've got something that you a point that you want to prove to the world about your country, and you happen to be hosting the Olympics during the, the, the year that you're trying to prove that, then that can be useful. No question about it. And sometimes a, a nice, well organized, welcoming Olympics can give countries a little boost. It doesn't normally last very long, but it can happen. It happened with China uh, with the with the Beijing Olympics. But China's, you know, on the up anyway. So I, I think what, what Japan needs to do is pretty much what I said before. They need to find a way of taking their culture, and I mean culture in the broadest sense, not so much their cultural heritage, but their their, their cultural output, their society, their, their mores, the way that they behave, the people they are, their language, their way of life, and turning it inside out and making it welcoming instead of hermetic and saying to the world, we want to share our culture with you and meaning it and doing it. Because the world has an insatiable appetite for Japanese culture. It is one of the most remarkable cultures that humanity has ever produced. It's one of the most civilized countries on earth. And people know this, and they're full of admiration for, for Japanese cuisine and Japanese art and all the rest of it. I can see it as a, you know, in terms as a father of, of teenagers, Japan looms incredibly large in the worldview you know, they grow out of Pokemon and into anime and you know, many kids involved in martial arts. It's so relevant to them in a way that, that very few very few countries are, are so are so salient in their worldview. Yeah. They haven't they haven't managed to extend that to popular music as well as South Korea has. And that's nothing to do, I believe, with the quality of the product. I mean, yes. But right now, games are a bigger industry than popular music. So you know, Japanese leadership in, in gaming is prob- probably, it, it, we, we date ourselves by emphasizing music and, and, and film when more money is, is going into games, more people are participating in games. And, and uh, you know, that should be a, a resource for Japan. Sure. I'm not putting more emphasis on music and film, but what I'm saying is that neither Japan nor any other country can do this on one sector alone. No, that's uh, agreed. I mean, it has to be as, as far as possible 360 degree outreach, because that's what it takes to make people think again about a country or, or, or learn some new ideas about it. The gaming is, of course, hugely important, but it is somewhat detached from the real country of origin, just because that's where the computer games are. They take place in fantasy locations. They're not branded particularly strongly as Japanese. My guess is that the majority of teenagers who um, consume Japanese products and and play Japanese games, they're not thinking much about Japan as they're doing that. Um, I mean, yeah, the driving games that are in the uh, cityscapes of Tokyo and so forth, that's, that's all quite cool and quite helpful. Yeah, the best ones of those come from Dundee. So, <laughs> is that a fact? Yeah, that's right. Apparently, Gra- Grand Theft Auto One Hunt is a that's Scottish. So, uh, but oh, okay. Uh, but the point is good. The point is good. They need to do a whole lot more. 
and they don't need to leave it up to the private sector. This is the American game that, that you know, you just you leave the private sector to promote your nation's values. And you hope that, you know, Hollywood and Microsoft will will will, will do do the job of uh, of the nation's soft power outreach. But the danger with, with, with something like the Olympics is that it will draw attention to cultural flaws that people don't notice when their spotlight is not shining your way. And I think we saw this with the unpleasantness over Japanese gender politics. Yep. And Japan had had quite a... Well, it's had a get-out-of-jail-free card. People haven't been focused on Japanese gender politics for many years, and suddenly the chairman of the Olympics says something outrageous, and the country has to decide what to do. But the problem isn't that one man says something. The problem is underlying attitudes that are out of step with the rest of the world. But if you point that out, human nature being what it is, people double down on it. Hmm. A parallel example is uh, consumption of marine mammals, whale meat. Once a week, the Japanese parliament has whale on the menu because they're the Japanese parliament and they have a right to eat what they what they want. Yes. And I think the world telling it, telling somebody, there's nothing like the world telling you you can't to hmm. get people in the mood to display their right to do the thing. Yeah, especially especially if your your culture in the anthropological sense is a very masculine one, and on the uh, Hofstede dimension of masculinity versus femininity, Japan ranks extremely masculine, up there with the Americans, and that's a typically masculine reaction. If if people appear to be criticizing your behavior or your habits, as you rightly say, they double down on it and say, you know, damn you, I've always done this and I'm going to do it more now which is why it's rather interesting to compare, for example, the Norwegian response uh, to public criticism of, of whaling with the Japanese one, the Norwegian culture being a very strongly feminine one using in the, in the Hofstede sense of the term. So uh, a very interesting comparison to be made there. I don't know, I, I, the, the last time I looked into the, into the issue of people eating whales was in the Faroes. And there I was told that it's kind of on its way out anyway, because the levels of concentrations of heavy metals and other toxins within whale meat are becoming so high now that it's just not in your interest to eat whale meat. Um, it's banned for pregnant women in Iceland and uh, Norway and the Faroes anyway. So I think it's surely only a matter of time before what becomes what is already culturally poisonous becomes, uh, becomes biologically poisonous. The, the final thing then is Japanese attitudes to migration. Mm. And this seems to be a massive time bomb for Japan that as the goodness of a country becomes linked to its willingness to accept refugees and migrants, yeah. we have Japan living in a bubble where they're really trying to opt out of taking care of refugees, where you know it's even difficult if you're ethnically Japanese but were born in Brazil to... Mm move to to japan so it, it it's a incredibly high bar is is set for migration yeah. that's surely going to be a problem going forward absolutely and and uh and time is everything because as we know 
it takes societies a great many generations to gradually start getting used to the idea that they're not whatever they think of as racially pure. It takes centuries of experience with migration before you can start to learn to manage it and tolerate it and even welcome it and see that as your identity. I mean, our own country, the United Kingdom, has been has been dealing with migrants for centuries and it still isn't very good at it. Better than some, worse than some, but you know, one gets the feeling that we're still learning about it, still learning how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And some of the countries that have had the experience of, of, of migrants from other countries coming in reasonably large numbers for, for a shorter period, like Italy, for example, which has only recently started acquiring non-Italian populations with, within its borders, really struggling, as all countries do. This is one of the toughest things for human societies to deal with. And Japan and that uh, learning curve is absolutely nowhere. All they have, the only knowledge they have of that particular uniquely 21st century global challenge is that they don't like the idea of it, which is not a great starting point. But maybe as a final thought, we can talk about that Japan needs to have more confidence in itself Mm. and that it isn't profound. It won't be profoundly endangered by migration. It's a strong enough concepts with strong enough uh, cultural practices to remain distinct for centuries going forward. Yes. I think it's also got something to do with... um, the way in which the world deals with Japan. And of course, that's beyond anybody's control. But what does tend to happen is that when the international community, in heavy quotes, decides that it disapproves of something that another country does, it tends to express that in a very aggressive and hostile way. And if the country being criticized is, like Japan, rather masculine uh, and rather defensive in nature, that starts off the dialogue in completely the wrong way and things rapidly spiral downwards. If only there was a way, and here's an interesting thought to leave it with, if only there was a way that one could encourage the international community to go gently with cultures that need to change to fit in the modern world. If only there was a way that we could show some forbearance and some understanding and realize that to some degree, the reason that they don't fit in with modern norms is not because they're nasty, it's just because they haven't had that experience yet and we need to go easy on them. If we come along and, you know, like your, your average campaigning NGO and say your practices are unacceptable, it's not going to get us very far. It's just not very good psychology. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cole. I'm still Simon Anhold.